everybody to episode number 16 of the Whiteness in America podcast. My name is Tom Bell. I'm Joshua Trinidad. And today we have a very special uh, guest host. Uh, I'll say uh, Dr. Lindsay Wagner is joining us for the entirety of the podcast today. Hey, Lindsay, how's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, thanks for all... being here. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. You are a repeat. You were in the uh, appropriately named, I think you actually named it, the episode uh, Wrecking Ball of Cotton, which is one of my favorite things to, to use when I talk with people about how to approach uh, delicate co- or having conversations on race in a way that is effective. So I'm excited to have a, a conversation. And now you're Dr. Wagner. So that's pretty cool. Dr. Wagner, it still feels a little weird. Ah, it's got a nice ring to it, I think. The whole uh, no graduation thing, I think, has um, added to the weirdness. It doesn't feel like it ended. Oh, yeah, that that would feel like you don't. That's right. Yeah, you, you, you haven't been hooded yet. Yeah. So, yeah. Are you hopeful that they will be able to do that in December, or do they are they not thinking that's going to happen? Uh, I think they're, they're still thinking that, but I, I don't know if I'm very hopeful. Yeah. Are you going to go in December if they do it? Of course. I can snowboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go visit Josh in Denver. You can, I, have a, I have some treats here in Denver. Nice. A little, treat, little treats. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. yeah, well, we're excited to have you uh, back on, uh, Lindsay. So um, you all doing pretty pretty well. How's life? You know, life is um, definitely interesting living in the city um, and no real outdoor space and being sort of isolated is has been difficult. But, um, you know, I have like 40 tomato plants growing in my 200 square foot yard. And so just, you know, farming in the city. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Did your sunflowers make it through the windstorm? Uh, I lost about half of them. Sadly. Oh, that's rough. I wanted to go outside and like hold them all while while the wind was blowing them around. <laughs> it was really hard to watch. Like go to the basement and um you know the television's telling us to go to the basement and I want to go hug sunflowers. <laughs> oh, that's that's funny but not funny. I mean it's pretty much a description of how 2020 has been. Yeah. I think. Um, you know, Josh and I were talking before you joined us and. He's like, do you ever just stop and just think, like, how fucked up this is? Like, just, like, literally, like, what the fuck happened with Seriously. Life? Seriously, though. Um, yeah, it's it's bizarre. Like, it's just small. Having, like, having beers early on with, you know, friends and, like, oh, you know, what's going to happen? Do you think this is probably not going to turn into anything? And, you know, the next week we're in lockdown. I'm like, hmm, okay. This is Five months now. later, we're still yeah. here. Yeah. So funny how we like to deny things up until it's undeniable. Or too late. And we still deny it. Yeah. (laughs) It's not real. You know, uh, Sarah Sarah and I did manage to take a a road trip recently. And, you know, we Mm. we have been very isolated. Like, uh, we don't go to the grocery store, don't go anywhere. We both work from home. So dog walks are really the only thing we had left the house for in, in almost five months. And her brother got married in New Hampshire, and um, it was just very small, like 10 people in his yard. And so we decided to go for it, and we got to the first toll booth, and <laughs> sort of oh. had this like, panic moment, like, there's a person <laughs> like <laughs> outside the window. 
I have to roll the window down. <laughs> you know, so put, put the mask on and and it, it was an interesting situation. But we, we did manage to only enter structures over the course of nine days to use the restroom. We camped um, and basically, you know, maintained social distance outside for nine days. And it, it was it was good. <laughs> That's kind of how I felt going through the drive through for the first time after six months. I was like, oh, God. You know what? This isn't worth it. I'm just going to drive off. <laughs> it's just fries. I don't fucking need them. <laughs> I don't need them. I think I, you know, I was, I've been socially awkward my entire life and I have a difficult time. Like, you know, I'm kind of an introvert. And so, but like, I've lost all social skill whatsoever. Like my neighbors will walk kind of, you know, 20 feet away from me. And all I want to do is like, look away. Cause I don't want to invite them into conversation. Like, I don't want to say, I'm okay having this conversation in a long period of time with you, but I, I just will, like, they'll ask a question. I'm like, yeah, I'm good, thanks. This has been really great. God, I'm such an asshole. Like, <laughs> but I just can't, like, I can't, I can't connect with humans right now, and it's really problematic. And so, um, yeah, it's just bad. It's bad. I just, I just don't know what to do. So. We have purposely turned the corner, like we're heading back to the house with the dogs and the neighbor will be on her porch and she's not very good at social distancing and we'll, we'll, we'll avoid home and, until she's not on the porch. <laughs> yeah. so, well, and that kind of, you know, alludes to a little bit of our, our topic today. So we have two main topics today. One is this, um, I don't know if either of you had the chance to watch uh Season four, which is actually recorded 2017, 2018, episodes are calling episode 99 of Blackish. Um, they did a whole episode on kind of the state of the United States post uh, the election of Trump. And um, the end of the episode really kind of talks about like all the horrible things that are going on and like the symptoms, the symptomatic nature of Trump being in office. It's not his actions are a symptom of the greater issues of white supremacy and whiteness. Right. But like the statement was at the end, like no matter what we as a country come together or people come together and, and that's not happening right now. So I want to talk about that and this construct of individualism as a whiteness. Um, obviously, um, uh, Democratic candidate uh, Joe Biden uh, announced that Kamala Harris would be his running mate, so we'll, we'll dig into that. Two of our two main topics. In this episode, we talk about Joe Biden's selection of Senator Kamala Harris as his running mate and candidate for vice presidency. However, this episode was recorded before President Trump made statements about the legitimacy of Kamala Harris's ability to be president and or, and or vice president. Josh and I will address these racist comments made by the president in a future episode. Now, back to our discussion. really hard to do a show about racism and race without bringing up the stupid things the president says like i'd like to try to avoid that but i can't like he just says so many things that are, are fodder for this and that, and that are symptomatic of this so the first thing you know after kamala harris was announced as um biden's running mate he called her nasty which seems to be his um 
language of choice for women in power. And I, I guess let's start there on that conversation. Like, I know a lot of people have talked about this, but what was what's your reaction or thoughts on how he continues to approach women in positions of power that he, I feel, feels threatened by? Anytime he has been challenged by a woman in a position of power, he feels all he can do is call them nasty. And so it's just really interesting. Um, you know, I saw a comparison uh, where, you know, he wished uh, the woman that was partnered with um, Epstein well, <laughs> um, who is uh, allegedly uh, basically raped children, um, but yet Kamala Harris, Hillary Clinton, my governor uh, here in Michigan, um, all powerful, strong, very smart women he calls nasty. So interesting. Uh, any thoughts on that and in your reaction or, or are we numb to it by now? I guess, you know, my first reaction is just, you know, kind of the same reaction I had when I found out he was elected. It's just a physical reaction that I feel in my body. You know, when he opens his mouth pretty much any time, it's, it's just a sick feeling. Um, very heavy, sick feeling that it, I don't know. And then, and then, you know, then it goes into just this really difficult, um, I cannot process how anybody can support him. And so then it goes into that for me of just like, how can anyone support a man as a leader of our country that, you know, speaks about any woman that way or any person that way? Um, and so then I just start to get angry and, you know, move into this divisiveness that um, it probably isn't the most healthy place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I totally understand. Like, I kind of feel the same way. Um, it's just, it, it's. I, I try to compare it to, like, how I feel about police. It's like when I'm around some of my friends and I'm like, oh, God, there's a cop right there. You know, it's like, it's kind of, like, numbing, but I always bring it up. And they're always like, God, you're always, like, bringing it up. And I'm like, well, that's kind of how I feel about Trump. It's like I always have to bring it up. And then it's just, like, becomes kind of numbing, but it's just, like, it's always there and I recognize it all the time. And I'm not sure if everybody sees it as often as some others, Yeah. but that's how I feel like when I see police, I'm like, oh, there's police right there. And my friends are like, okay. And I'm like, all right, like, just want to let everybody know, like, hey, Trump <laughs> sucks. Just want to let everybody know that still. So yeah, it's, <laughs> that's how I experience it. He's like police to me. Yeah, and I think you know Lindsay's Lindsay's point is really interesting too. Like he he has been given a position of power, and is as I said, like his actions are he is a symptom of our larger problematic nature of of a country that is still yearning for and supporting and upholding whiteness in all of its facets, right? So he came out yesterday uh august 12 and said the suburban housewife will be voting for me first of all it's problematic language in and of itself from 1950 um and then they want safety and are thrilled that i ended the long-running program where low-income housing would wave or would invade their neighborhood biden would reinstall in a bigger form with cory booker in charge which is interesting that he calls out booker in this uh, piece and then which is that's a follow-up tweet from a july 29th tweet where he said i'm happy to inform all people living in the suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhood 
So, I mean, that's not just race baiting in of itself. It is just overt, um, you know, um, racist language in itself. And, and it's largely problematic. But he's being enabled by the folks that support him and that put him in that position to say these things. And so um, I, I just don't know at this point what to do with that. Like, how do we have conversations with folks to unpack the problem is the problems of what he's saying, I guess. I, I That's where I'd like to start the conversation on this. Like, how do we even start to have conversations or is it even worth the ability to have a conversation with someone about how problematic these statements are? I think that's a, a very dangerous point that I have found myself reaching actually is like coming to that point of it's not worth it anymore um, to even engage and that's scary like getting to that point yeah I mean Lindsay you know as a white person like I, I feel like it's our job a little bit to kind of continue to engage even when it's difficult and hard um, to not have to put that pressure or not have to put that ownership work on folks of color um, you know, and, and I think I, I, I resonate with you, like it is like, what is the point in having the conversation? But I feel like at some point, you know, like Josh said, you, you have to be that person that points it out all the time and it does get numbing, but like, I just feel like we, we have to continue to dig into that because we got to get our people right. Like, I think that that's part of, part of the challenge with this, but it's exhausting and difficult. Yeah, so. for sure. I think it's interesting, though, like the rhetoric in itself that, you know, that he's even being more divisive within his supporters and using, you know, socioeconomic status now to even further divide his his camp, which I'm not sure you know if they know they're being divided. So they're, you know, yeah, I'm low income, but it doesn't matter. Like, I just, <laughs> you can go ahead and jab me all day. Like, cool. But that was yeah. such, you know, that was such a low blow to maybe some of his supporters that live in low income, which there's a good chunk of them. And they may not even know that, like, that was a pretty powerful statement against them. Yeah. So, um, but I see what he's doing, though. Like, he's really trying to, you know, alienate even further um, the Democrats. And so, but at the same time, though, I don't... <laughs> I don't think he realizes, like, or his his fans. I should. I don't call them voters. They're his fans. His fans, um, you know, don't even know that they're being divided. They just they just keep going with the flow. I think. But let me ask you guys this: like, you know, even as we think about suburban life, um, would you? I mean, would you guys say that? Typically speaking, like, it is a Republican voting. Um, like demographic that exists in suburbia in America these days, um, because I'm pretty surprised actually what I, I read into like in a large city, you know. But majority of large cities typically are liberal, but but I don't know if that's necessarily true. Like thinking of the counter narrative for suburbia, suburbia. So what do you what do you all think about that? Hmm. Well, I live in a suburb, I guess, technically speaking. Uh, we, I live in a rural suburban community. Um, and I would say it's it's very red historically. However, um, and, and uh, you know, when you 
drive around out here, you do see a lot of folks with Trump flags uh, on their cars, which is super cool. Um, so yeah, I think I think he's trying to speak out to folks that want to keep their communities closed, and um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but I do see that it's not working as much as he thinks it is. Uh, so to your point, Josh, I don't think I think he's losing folks um, that are um, thinking a little bit more critically about this and may have in the past questioned or went along with him because they didn't like Hillary for whatever reason and were offended potentially by Colin Kaepernick taking a knee because they saw it as a military or an anti-military thing. But now we're starting to see oh shit, maybe, maybe black lives do matter. Maybe I've been looking at this a little bit wrong. Maybe the president is racist. Maybe he is sexist. Maybe he's got a thing for his daughter. And they're starting to come around to that a little bit because people are critical thinkers, I'd like to believe in some sense. And so, you know, the, the data suggests that he is losing some of the people that this particular quote might target. And I don't know if this is the right way to do that because it, it is alienating and it, it's driving that wedge even further. So if they're starting to see, oh, maybe I need to be a little bit more human and, and, and support um, folks of color, maybe maybe that's not the right way to go about it. I don't know. Lindsay, what are your thoughts? I, I know that you both live in the kind of a city, so like, um, but the, Chicago is, it has a really urban or suburban, yeah. interesting suburban dynamic, I think. Between, yeah, I, mean, I think yeah. even suburbia in Chicago is segregated. You know, the city is very segregated, and suburbia right. is kind of the same way. Um, I was surprised. We took a, a drive up to Illinois Beach State Park, which is about an hour north of Chicago, and we drove home um, down the lakeshore, uh, which involves driving through a very, very rich um, area that's just north of Chicago. Um <clears throat> And there were quite a few Trump flags, and I was very, wow. very surprised. And it was out, you know, it's just north of the um, Evanston, where Northwestern University is. And, um, yeah, driving through there, I was just like, what in the hell is going on? That is not what I expected in this area. And, yeah, it was surprising. But that, that um, you know, I, I haven't spent a lot of time in the suburbs um, around Chicago, so I don't can't really speak to it. Yeah. I mean, I know it sprawls pretty hard. It's the suburban, the suburban, um, like I should say the metropolitan of Chicago is so large, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's massive. So I can only imagine, but it's, it's similar. I'd say here in Denver too, but we have a lot of people it's gentrified or continuing. And, um, it's just interesting to see who's moving in to Denver and how much that changes the landscape here of, um, you know, like, for example, like the neighborhood I live in right now is used to be like 90% Chicanos. And now I'd say it's like 50%. And you may see people with like Trump stickers on their trucks parked in my neighborhood mm. because people want to live in Denver, but it's interesting to see what's moving in. Yeah. Know? The neighborhood I live in Chicago is really fascinating. It's um it's called Bridgeport and it, it used to be a uh, you know working class neighborhood, Irish neighborhood, mm -hmm. um predominantly white and and that's that's changing now. Um but with the uh, 
the Black Lives Matter um, protests going on in Chicago, there was a really, really interesting moment in this neighborhood where um, some white guys with bats tried to uh, chase down some protesters and created a, a really contentious situation. Um, there's trying to be vigilantes and um, it, it got very interesting, but especially in, in, in the neighborhood, it was interesting because it's not a white neighborhood. Well, I guess a lot of people would say that this is still a predominantly white neighborhood, but the demographics are definitely changing. And so when you walk down the street, um, you know, you can walk through four or five houses and maybe one of those houses might have a Trump situation posted somewhere, but there's a lot of pushback. And I think a lot of really good conversation going on in this neighborhood um, that I do appreciate. Yeah, that's gotta be some rich uh, conversation, particularly right now, I'm assuming with all the things going on in Chicago. I know Chicago has been really um, lately, particularly in the forefront of some of the, the protests and, and, and for Black Lives Matter. So um, I, I imagine the dialogue and the, and the it has been really fascinating with some of your neighbors and things like that. That's pretty cool. And, and Lindsay, you live, um, I've been to Chicago a few times. You're not too far from Chinatown and like the Lower West Side, right? Yeah, I am actually, I'm right in the corner of the neighborhood. So um, like, where I sit in, in Bridgeport, uh, I am essentially on the border of Chinatown and on the border of Pilsen. So it's, oh, it's really, yeah. yeah, it's really cool. So that's high, is that Highway 55 or what is, yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah, right 55? off 55, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's an interesting, like, that intersection to those other neighborhoods, things change drastically as you move more north, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to bring up too, uh, just earlier today, the Department of Justice followed through on a uh, investigation they started in February of this year of Yale University and their admission practices. Uh, and they're accusing Yale University of discriminating against Asian American and white applicants uh, in its undergraduate admission process, saying that Yale rejects scores of Asian American and white applicants each year based on race. They disfavor applicants from white and Asian American races compared to African American applicants with similar academic credentials. Uh, further, the Justice Department said uh, they are in violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and must stop using race as, an, as a, um, a criterion for uh, admission. So, you know, um, Yale obviously is denying this allegation and saying it's meritless and hasty uh, and they're not really understanding what they're doing. Uh, Yale also said they provided the Justice Department with a substantial amount of information and data that would indicate that while race is a factor that is weighed, it is um, a fair factor uh, that is being, uh, along with other other things, which is um, part of the civil, uh, they're, they're within the, the, what the Supreme Court upheld as part of the ability to use race as a suite of information that can be used for admission criteria. But I think from my opinion and my perspective, this is just another example of, you know, um, the D Department of Justice, the Attorney General's office, coming forward and saying, you know, um, we, we need to see more white kids in these pr pr prestigious universities, um, which is problematic in, in my opinion. And so it's just another arm of, of, of whiteness, I think, in, in action and the legal. So 
don't know, or uh, do you have either of you have any thoughts or reactions to this? I know I kind of sprung this topic on you, but I just saw it come across um, on my watch right before I logged in uh, to our conversation. Tonight. So I wanted to bring it up real quick. Um, any reactions on that? Uh, I think you're exactly right, Tom. It's just a, an effort to uphold the, the structure that exists in higher education. Um, you know, make sure the the image and the property maintains, um, you know, is maintained, maintains ownership by, you know, white privilege, essentially. Um, that's absolutely what's happening. Well, it's, it's really an example of the race neutral policies, right? So anytime, and, and, you know, Lindsay, I think you talked about this a little bit in I'm, I'm, I want to say it was in your dissertation defense, but I can't remember if it was there or in another conversation that we had. But these these policies that end up being like race neutral or color evasive on, on their face, like like this, where you're saying, well, we can't even consider race, is problematic on some level because then you're just favors favoring the status quo, and the status quo is um, is this whiteness element, this white supremacy piece that is embedded in the system of higher education and education in general, and so. Um, you know, I think we, we've had conversations about, and I think looking at race as a factor and, and, and trying to not be neutral on race, um, but not use, um, but not discriminate against folks of color. And I think that that's where this, the, the legal piece of this is problematic. So, you know, in Michigan, we have um, uh, a state um, amendment in our constitution that was passed in 2006 that basically says you can't even factor race so everything is really race neutral like we can't even think about it or talk about it we can't have affinity group conversations on a college campus uh, because then you're saying oh well you can you can have this organization or this space for um, black and african-american folks um, but white folks can't gather, right? So like it, everything has to be like super race neutral. And so that's what basically I think the Attorney General's Office and the Department of Justice is arguing for is that they just wanna see everything go back to this neutral space, which really promotes hegemonic whiteness in practice. So I think that's really problematic. Um, and my hope is, is that this does Ever not- Ever be neutral though. I mean, you, you could say that race is neutral, but it can never be neutral. I mean, if you think about right. even just an address listed or a name, like it's never neutral. Yeah, and so I think that's the point, right? Like, so anytime you see that written, it's re what they're really saying is we just want whiteness to win because yeah. that is the neutral standpoint. So, and until that shifts or until that gets uh, disrupted and dismantled as the the neutral place, then. That's what neutrality is. Josh, do you want to? Well, I was going to ask you both if, if either one of you talked about in your dissertations about whiteness as property, specifically mm -hmm. systems, right? So specifically like, you know, education system, that's property that belongs to whiteness. And so when power shifts and whiteness, or I should say power starts to slip away from, from white, from the white people, they try to grab back onto it as quickly as possible, be that of legislation or, um, you know, the way that they'll run a campus, they'll enact their own rules, because again, the system is created by them. So it's a very elaborate and very deep system, whiteness system, because it, there's like all these safe barriers that maintain it 
just be white supremacist, like a basis of white supremacy. So it's like you can get past like this first blockade, but don't worry, there's like all these other things you have to get past in order to really challenge whiteness. And so again, this is just another form of like these safety nets that, um, you know, whiteness as property exists in these systems for a reason. It's built so well and so methodical that it's it's really hard to penetrate. And so this is this is no surprise. There's a safety net even behind this, and there's something behind that that still doesn't liberate those that are minoritized. And so what we need to figure out is how do we penetrate those those different barriers, right? And we don't know. I mean, is it protesting? Is it really protesting? Or what does protesting look like then? Is it scholarly work? Is it is it hands fists in the air in the street? Like, what do we do? What would you guys do? How do we penetrate these these barriers? So I'll get vulnerable here, you know, because that's what I do. Um, so <laughs> in my dissertation, I I did talk about um, uh, whiteness's property and and took it further that work becomes a property of the working class. And for me in higher education, you know, my work became my property. And because I'm white, I was able to move up very, very quickly and um, kind of fill, uh, you know, m make the administration feel good because they were hiring, um, you know, a woman. Um, but the only reason is because I behaved like a white male in that situation and, you know, played the role that I was supposed to play. Um, and, you know, after I wrote that dissertation, it was an autoethnography, so I was studying myself and it was very disturbing, you know, the conclusion that I came to. And so now, um, you know, the whole doctoral program is over and I've been consulting and, you know, I, I really would like to get back working in an institution, being part of a team. Um, you know, I love the work. I love being on a campus, but I'm scared because I now am aware of that behavior and I have this very big fear that I don't know how to con conduct myself in the way that I want to conduct myself. And I don't know if I have the strength to stand up to the system that I will have to go back to work in. And, um, you know, it, it's it's keeps me up at night because it's like there is no way that I can go back doing what I was doing. But I don't yet know how I can go be a disruptor and actually maintain a job. You know, it's... Um, it's something that I'm I'm trying to figure out because I I know one thing and I will not let myself go back to doing what I was doing, but I don't yet know how to not do it and be able yeah. to maintain a job. <laughs> well, I think that's that's part of that colonization, right? So like, yeah. and, and I guess we can kind of jump into the the one of the main topics of individualism as an aspect of that colonization, but like, I think you know, we're all colonized on some level, right? So like, we're all colonized to, to think that this is how you, you you act and you function. And, you know, as white folks, um, as a white guy, like I was taught, this is how, what it means to be white. This is what it means to be a, a man. This is what it means to be, you know, cisgender. This is what it means to be, 
able-bodied this is what it means to be you know um, heterosexual like this th these are all the these things and in in any variance outside of that you get chastised or you get corrected right and so Lindsay, what i what i really appreciated when i was listening to your defense and when i read your dissertation is that vulnerability and we've we we shun from vulnerability in our society we don't embrace it we don't teach people how to live in a vulnerable space and if i can think about any time that i've learned or really grown as a human it's when i've allowed myself and have been given the space to be vulnerable to challenge those fake barriers those fake facades of the colonized frame that i'm supposed to maneuver in um and and so you know i was just meeting with a group of our student teachers today as they get ready to go and try to fucking teach in an unteachable situation. And I said, you know, the one thing that you have to think about is be vulnerable. Like I did this presentation today for you. We, we built this orientation. We screwed up 13 times today that I can count. You can probably count more. And I'm okay with that because we're learning and we're growing and we're trying new things. And that's, that's how this is. And if you can't be vulnerable in your own space and, and do that, then you're not going to learn through this. So you won't take the feedback you get. You won't allow yourself to be challenged. And when you are challenged, you'll you'll shut down as opposed to grow. And I think we're taught in the society that we have to be strong. We can't take criticism. And you see it at the front. And I know that those pounds on my desk are going to make the microphone sound really great. Um, but I, you see it like when and I and I, I hate going back to Trump, but he is like the ultimate example of the symptom of the problems that we see. Anytime he is caught in a lie, anytime that he is being challenged on the truth um, being fabricated or like just he screwed up, he can't even admit it because he is this personification of whiteness and, and masculinity and um, toxic masculinity and in, in, in power. So... So I didn't mean to go on like this whole diatribe, but like Lindsay, what you said really resonated with me and I really appreciated your vulnerability because I think that's so core to some of the things that we're doing on the individual level of, of challenging what you're talking about, John. I mean, I, I think the, you know, as you talk to him, I think the answer that I need to just accept is that I have to be willing to fail. You know, I know how I want to conduct myself and I have to be willing to go in there and do it and see what happens, you know. Hmm. Feel that I think Lindsay, me, and you've even talked about that. Both of us is the consulting roles. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, I want to be part of the team, and I kind of, I don't know, I really kind of don't. And I want to be part of the group, like the institution, but I kind of don't. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I'm in, I'm in that situation myself right now. Like again, I'm consulting with university folks again, and I feel very fulfilled with that. But then I know in a few months I'm gonna be like, uh. I just want a full-time position now of that, um, you know, in higher ed. But, um, you know, one of the things I was thinking about was, I mean, not to, I don't want to alienate our listeners too much, but um, just thinking of, like, the work of, like, Delgado and Cheryl Harris, you know, about their approach and, and thoughts about whiteness as property. And even deeper than that, like, even this conversation is dominated by whiteness, you know, even in the in the context that we're even framing this discussion and the way we're deconstructing this is still owned by whiteness. And so it even reaches deeper and mm -hmm. it's like, it's hard to shake. I mean, it's, it's hard to know 
what 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 is what is the opposite of this i don't i don't know yep. and so that's 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 very hard it's very hard um it's like it's like when i tell my parents like oh you guys should really travel to southeast asia i mean how can they miss something they've never had you know it's like i i, I want them to experience that and i know that there's something uncolonized i just don't know what it looks like and tastes like and feels like but i'm go i want to go there that's all i know i was i want to go there but i don't know where it is or i don't know what it looks like yeah i was really struck um by this you know and i've really been playing around so in, in my dissertation i do talk about the property of whiteness and and i really focused on how we even do diversity work um, and, and approach these things from an individual standpoint and from like, so if I can just cure Lindsay of her whiteness, then I've done my job as an educator. Or if I can work with a group of people and they can start dealing with their own individual racial bias, then, then we've done our work. And we approach everything from this individualistic frame that folks then feel like when they have to challenge these systems and structures that they're by themselves too, right? So like... You know, it kind of gets into that bigger discussion when I when I was watching um, that episode of Blackish that I mentioned earlier uh, that kind of spawned this whole topic. I was really first really moved by I really I like that show because I think it's funny. It's it's very pointed when it talks about race. There's really great conversations. They make mistakes, but like there's some really great stuff um, in that. And then the end really struck me because this was recorded two years ago, I think 2017 or 2018. And, you know, they were talking about the hurricanes that happened that year and how people came together in the streets and saved each other and worked together. And, you know, while the president was throwing paper towels, like you saw communities come together, regardless of race, trying to support one another, because that's what we that's, quote unquote, what we did. And that's what the main character says at the end. We always come together. And when I think about how we're responding as a nation to covid, it is so individualized. It is so on the individual to just respond and, and people are choosing to not wear masks because they feel like their individual rights are are being taken and I'm, I'm starting to wonder like is this is this now the manifestation of this individualism that we've been breeding for 400 years and now that we have a person in power who is the personification of whiteness in practice now, i'm not saying that we've never had a racist president we've had 45 racist presidents including barack obama who did things that upheld whiteness in practice right but he is the personification of of all of these things and in, in, in public and now i'm wondering like will we ever have those moments again for example post 9 11 where you see folks come together and band together and start moving beyond the individual and see humans for humans sake um where we start to really understand that we are connected as as a human kind um as opposed to just individuals working on this together so i have a theory okay that i've been thinking about all right um i think that Originally, when COVID-19 hit and everyone was told to stay home um, and things closed down uh, in ways that we had never experienced before, it sort of stopped the momentum of the country, right? So movement was stopped. And I think that when there is no momentum, things become heavier. So individuals were forced to feel um, things that they may not have felt when there was momentum. 
they're forced to um, maybe sit with thoughts that they wouldn't have had when there was momentum. <laughs> and the reaction to that has become very individualized. But I want to hope that in that individual, you know, stillness that was forced and this action that has come out of it that is, um, in, in most cases, very individualized, that that action will somehow spur momentum again, but the momentum will not be in the numbing sort of existence that we all had before. It will be in a much more vibrant existence that will spark change. So my hope is that we're just in this transition process in which momentum will again restart, but in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think yeah. that... that that gives credit to why like the black lives matter movement has been so powerful. And I think is gaining traction and continues to be part of the, at least the national narrative of conversation. You still see news stories about it, which is very rare for something um, after a period of time. And, 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 you know, as I think folks that I've worked with have, have started to joke, you know, white people are starting to realize that racism is a thing. Um, you know, right. I've, I've heard that from other folks too, right? Like, oh shit, racism's real. Oh, okay. Well, oh, we, we better do something about it now. Now that we've realized it's real, like we can do something about it. Um, but I think that that's part of this whole thing. And I, I, Lindsay, I like that you're, you're looking at this from a silver lining aspect of maybe, maybe the, we're seeing both things happen at the same time, ultimate individualism, but that sense of numbing that happened, that, that we've, which is part of that colonization of not slowing down, stopping thinking, is also manifesting in these revolutionary actions such as Black Lives Matter, which might have the ability to shake and, and topple and disrupt and dismantle systems that have existed for 400 plus years. Yeah, but I think, you know, in, in smaller scale, there, there are other things happening as well. You know, I was involved in some reading group for white educators this summer there was like 504 people that just like jumped on this you know twitter invite and it, it was really kind of fascinating like for me anyway it's like well you haven't thought about this before and like <laughs> it, it made me happy that suddenly you know at least 504 higher education professors decided to suddenly think about this but i mean i i would hope that those 504 people are not the only small groups of people that are also, you know, starting to feel something and sort of generate momentum in a new direction. I, I love your theory, Lindsay, and it, I feel like it's in parallel if we were to think about history a lot with like the Harlem Renaissance and as much as what was going on, you know, during the 1920s, um, the amount of racism that existed, you know, the, the African-American community really took that situation and they owned it and they put their stamp on it and it was one of the biggest i would say positive movements in american history where we saw people uh, through the uh, the harlem renaissance uh, movement where we saw artists and uh, poets and musicians and leaders emerge because of the amount of racism that was existing at that time that they literally slowed it down and then the Harlem Renaissance movement really like sped it up in a different way in which I think then led to the 
to the civil rights movement, which gave it its legs to now. And so I think it is this kind of like this, this really positive movement of like about marathon, if you will, from one movement to the next, and it's just speeding up, but it's speeding up in a good way right now. So I think, I think you, I think you're, I mean, I love your, your theory. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and you could say that it is, I, I do see it happening in other sectors. Like Josh, you and I have had this conversation about education. We're being forced to think about things differently, which isn't a bad thing because the education system is broken. And we, you know, you ask teachers, and but we all comply. So it's it's back to Lindsay's statement. Like I did the thing that I was supposed to do because I was, I did it for so long or I went in and this is what I was told a teacher does and this is how I did it because this is what the system does. Now that doesn't exist anymore because people are having to be creative and try new things and, and um, invent as they go. And we're also seeing the huge ass cracks in the system that exists in public education in the United States. And so which I my hope is, if I was to use Lindsay's language, my hope is, is that we realize these cracks exist. And instead of just going back to the schools as we know it, to do something different and try new things. And, and we might fail, which is problematic because we'll fail kids, but we've been failing kids for years. And that's not gonna, you know, like it's not gonna be any different. It just will be a different type of failing. So I, I think we're at a kind of a crossroads to try maybe to start doing some different things that is, are unique and, and, and maybe move us forward as a society rather than backwards, which is kind of where I feel like we were going pre-February of 2020. But that's just I mean, I think I think if we're if we're paying close attention to our our minoritized communities, there is a lot of positive momentum right now um, mm. of leaders of um, just the collectiveness. It is like I said, reminiscent of what happened in Harlem in the 20s, and so I think it's more than just Harlem now. It's happening across our country where we see this 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 power, this property, if you will, like this, they're, you know, the communities are now saying like, this is, this actually belongs to us now. Well, Josh, um, that's the, the question, like what's the opposite of whiteness, right? And that's what it is. What you're describing is the opposite of whiteness, right? So like whiteness exists because it's anti-blackness. Put it, I'm mean, like, if I were to just put it in simplistic terms, you know, the existence of whiteness is the absence of blackness. Um, and, and so when you start to see communities of color and folks from minoritized backgrounds come together and um, in a liberated sense, you know, Paula Freire said, right, you know, I can't, as the oppressor, liberate you, like the, the, the oppressed have to liberate themselves, right? So that's I'm, I'm really dumbing down his statement, but like if I was to boil it down, like that's essentially what he said. And so when you um, communities have the space to do that on their own and they're left to do that with the appropriate resources and not caused harm by the system and structures that have been problematic for years against them, you do see beautiful things occur. You do see life, you do see flourishment. And I think that that is the, the anti-whiteness, that is the celebratory nature of how we, we you know, see um, minoritized folks um, liberated in this country. 
So yeah. that yeah. Uh, any other kind of final thoughts on this topic before we jump into the beep stakes, if you will? Because uh, I, I know that I, I just want to I, I touch on this because I think Biden's pick of Kamala Harris has been interesting to see. You know, I know, you know, I, I wasn't I'm not really thrilled about Biden as the nominee. Um, you know, we talked to Nolan Cabrera a little bit about this, too, and his, his statement was I'm going to vote for him because not voting for him would be basically putting Trump back in office. And, um, you know, I, I think some folks are frustrated that Kamala, because she was a uh, prosecutor um, and the attorney general, um, did some pretty heinous things to folks of color in her role. Um, uh, and so I think that that is part of the, the challenge against her. Um, and so, you know, in a system where whiteness exists, and this kind of maybe gets back to Lindsay's point, like how much of her response in that role was that colonized frame? And was it really her trying to survive as a prosecutor, as a district attorney? Or was that really what she wanted to do or thought was appropriate? Like, I, I guess, like, how much of that is on her and how much is it not? And I think we often, again, get back to the individualization of this and blame her without thinking about the systemic scopes that went into um, her being placed in those positions of power in general and then having to own that role in the way that people thought about that role and what it should be. Um, so that's I, I kind of my, my thought initially. I don't know what, what the two of you think about her as the potential vice president nominee and, and for the Democratic Party. Or... The thing that I was most bothered by is the fact that there was no mention of the situation that happened in the debate regarding the school bus um, comment that Biden made and then completely attacked her. Like, I don't know. I mean, she hasn't said anything about that situation. Kind of just, I'll be your nominee and we don't need to talk about that anymore. It was just bothersome to me. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I do think there was a point where she did come out and say that she um, believed his accusers, the, his sexual assault accuser, um, or at least that we should acknowledge her her statements. And you know, until those don't pan out to be factual, we should believe her. And then there's not been follow up. So, I you know, I think that that's those are all good things to kind of dig into. You know, um, and and. That's what I like about that's what I like about being a, a liberal Democrat at some level is that I think we do hold our folks to a higher level, but I do think at some regard, you know, there was the election of Obama in 08, and I think particularly for well, I think a lot of people took their foot off the gas. Um, Josh, you've used this gas metaphor before, and I think. And I like it. I think we all kind of fell asleep at the wheel a little bit. You know, we, we have a um, uh, a very progressive, liberal-minded, African-American man in the White House. And the economy started to come back, and people were like, well, you know. Um, and I think we stopped really paying attention in a critical way, and I think that that can't happen again. So that's a lesson learned, I think, this time with that. I don't know. Josh, what were you thinking? I know you are going to say something. Well, I've always, I think about this because my, my wife, Erin, she's in law and I just, and I just kind of watch how she navigates 
the system as an individual that works in the profession and how much she has to not only adapt and um, assimilate to the culture, but being a woman of color too, in a couple of ways of systematic oppressiveness within the profession. I think she, you know, we, we and her were talking about it. And I said, you know, it's just so interesting how like Kamala Harris, for example, she gets slammed for certain things that she did. But if it was a male, I think it would be different. And so I just think it's interesting that when a woman plays a man's game, they're nasty, right? Or they're right. Um, horrible people. But when a man does it, they don't bring it up or they're considered heroes. And so, you know, Lindsay, this is something I wanted to talk to you to specifically with what, in, with what you work. You know, I'm sure you too have navigated this um, as well in your own way. So what are some ways in which that you kind of, you know, have as well felt kind of that, that, you know, that I would say impression from people? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, it happens constantly. Um, you know, I can't get away with speaking in meetings like, um, you know, men can. I'm expected to not speak up, not create a ruckus, not, you know, do certain things. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I guess, I'd, yeah, it's, um, it's interesting for sure. I, I think it's a, a weird question for me to answer because, you know, I don't necessarily identify, I don't identify as a woman. I, you know, I identify as androgynous. And so because I, my body appears very female, um, you know, I always get put into that category. And um, so I feel sort of odd answering this question, honestly. <laughs> Well, it's just interesting too, like, you know, I think to a lot of professions, like even it's happened here, even at, at some of the schools I've worked at, I just feel like the grouping that people put us into, minoritized populations, they're just like, you fit in this bucket and I'm gonna put everything that goes with that bucket and who I think you are, you get all of those thoughts and feelings and you, you get all these thoughts and feelings and I'm not gonna take the time to get to know you. And that's, I think, again, going back to whiteness is property. Nobody wants to deconstruct that because right. these bins were created by white, by white supremacy. And so, you know, it is interesting. I think that in itself, Lindsay says a lot, like here you are navigating a system that is actually created to put buckets, put, put individuals into buckets and then therefore they get all these labels and our impressions and, you know, I just I just find it so interesting as this uh, campaign is starting to roll out is that, you know, anytime somebody is powerful and not a male, they're just, they're horrible. And they're gonna tell you everything that's horrible about them. But it's just like, how long are we gonna let Trump go, go on with like being a rapist, being a criminal, being these things when we can't even call it some of the basic, you know, call it some of those basic things that he's done wrong, but when other people who are not male try to play the game too, they're like, oh, you can't play the game because you're not like me. And so I just I just find that as an interesting dichotomy that's created within the systems. 
I think also too the one thing that kind of jumped out at me as we are talking about this is you know we talked about individualism. There's an interesting thought about who gets to be individuals and who doesn't. Like who gets to have their own identity and be not thought as a, a category in a box, and who doesn't. Right. So like anyone that is not a white guy falls into a box, and then you need to fit into that box. So like. One of the things that's been really interesting watching folks discuss this is like, you know, not all black folks are going to get behind Kamala Harris just because she's, you know, biracial and, and identifies as a black woman. Um, but there's an expectation that, 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 that they will, right? Like, and it's really fascinating that no one expects because I'm white that I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. Like, that's just not a, a, even a thought that crosses people's mind because that's not the normalization of it. But, like, and I think it's really interesting of who we allow to be individuals and not be labeled and who we don't and how we label folks and how that becomes a part of that dialogue. So I really appreciated that statement, Lindsay, of, like, like even just sharing, like, the awkwardness of, of, not a, of, of trying to process that question from Josh and like even think about it like how we even talk about things and how we in order to make things make sense for dominant culture we put people in these buckets that don't match them at all because we don't want to give them the human the human humanity of being individuals and doing that self-identity piece which I think is part of that dehumanizing element of white supremacy yeah, because I think about like who who writes the rules, like when we think about the Constitution or who sits on these boards at universities, and you know they're not people that look like me. <laughs> so why not make rules that exist and they only succeed for those that are making them, right? What is it? Those who make the gold make the rules. Is that is that what they say? I don't know. I've never heard that before. You never heard that? That sounds pretty accurate. I mean, it sounds accurate. I just, I just never heard that before. I think I heard. I know who Charlie controls Brown. the, who controls the past controls the future. Oh, well, that's scary. Who controls the future controls the past. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say one of the. This is a little bit off subject, but not not entirely. But one of the best things I've read all week is you know there's a professor that created some way of determining who is going to win an election and that occurred in like 1984 and he has been accurate on every single election and he says that um trump is not going to win oh God. yeah i read that too and i was excited and a little giddy on the inside right yeah. um <laughs> uh, and i think that's one of the things that i i guess you know i was really intensely watching a, a facebook argument on Josh's Facebook wall about the, the Trump, uh, about Kamala Harris, right? So like, and it's really interesting. And, and I think that's the thing, I think, again, going back to the lesson learned is, yes, there are problems with Joe Biden. Yes, there are problems potentially with Kamala Harris. But I, I feel like this time, progressive-minded individuals that want to change the system, that want to disrupt and dismantle all of the hegemonic things that are problems with in the way our society functions. We're farther away from being able to do that with Trump in office, particularly because I don't think 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to last another four years in the Supreme Court, right? Like, I think strategically, like, we, there's a system that exists, and yes, me saying that we have to play in the system is awfully white of me to say that to begin with, but like, for the next five months, we have to play in this system. And then I think instead of taking our gas off and being like, okay, finally, we have some Democrats in, it's no, we're going to push even more progressive ideas forward. We're going to work for universal health care. We're going to work for dismantling the current justice system. We're going to work to change and shift the education system that exists. We're going to work to shift health care, not just health coverage, but the health system in general. Um, the criminal justice system needs to be different. The way that we look at housing and zoning and, and loans and, and student debt and all of those things need to, like, we have to continue to push harder, I think, once, um, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris win in November. Um, but yeah, I just, I'm real nervous if folks say, ah, that that, that person's not my candidate, I'm going to vote a far left person or a green party or whomever um kanye. as a statement yeah or kanye <laughs> right like that just it just doesn't make sense and i get it like how much longer can we have a two-party system okay i agree with that but this is maybe not the time we have to do that in a non-election year we have to dismantle and build like rethink the system not during an election year and so we have those two years before 2024, where I think we can start doing that work. That's just my, I guess, you know, as a white guy, like I understand like that there's some issues with what I'm saying, but I don't want to go back to the way it was, that's for sure. I don't want to go back to 2008, 2009, 2010, because we'd still end up where we're at now. And I don't want to be where we're at now, 10 years from now. Any final thoughts from the two of you before we, uh, wrap it up for tonight yeah i i was gonna say this earlier well now that you brought it up uh i was thinking like because on my on my facebook uh timeline it was interesting just to see how divisive even liberal democrats are within ourselves and and this is this is basically what i, I mean my this is my analogy here is like think of somebody who's on a diet okay let's say it's me who needs to be on one Okay, and Trump and Pence are like this big sheet of white cake with a shit ton of frosting. And let's say that Kamala and Joe Biden are this plate full of cheeseburgers. Okay, and we have to pick. Okay, remember, we're on a diet. We have to pick which one we want to eat. And people are getting on my timeline and going, uh... I can't believe I have to pick. Um, I'm going to pick salad. I'm like, no, no, no. That's not the choice. The choice is cheeseburgers or cake. Well, I eat kale and I'm a vegetarian. Okay, I know that. I know that. I know that. <laughs> but that's not the choice right now. You're going to have to stomach one of them. And which one are you going to go with? And, you know, I'm going to go with some lean meat. Get some cheese because we know dessert doesn't it's not filling. It only lasts for a little bit of time. So I'm gonna go with an entree. And that's the way I've been trying to think of it is like people are arguing about just choices that don't exist. Even though you're lactose intolerant, you're gonna go with Even though I'm lactose and I brought up frosting, cheese. <laughs> I'm having 
I have cream in my coffee right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I'm just thinking about like how are my just it was just so informing. Like people are like, no, I am going to write in who I want and I'm going to sleep good about it. I'm like, what? You're crazy. You have to pick one. I'm sorry. So anyway, that's my final thoughts. Cheeseburgers or a big sheet of fucking cake. <laughs> Lindsay, what's your <laughs> what's your thoughts? <laughs> well, I definitely take the cheeseburger. Yeah. <laughs> well, you eat mostly protein anyway, right? Like you're on a yeah, pretty heavy I'd protein. Eat in case I, I would just eat it all. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> well, you know, I I really appreciate you uh coming on to talk with us today, Lindsay. I I, I have said this before and I you know, I, I I'm not saying this just to be just because you're in the room. I think I said it to your mom via text. <laughs> you are literally the smartest person I know and I always learn a lot from you and I have um really always enjoyed our conversations and um you know feel smarter because I'm friends with you and so thank you so much for coming on and uh I'll give you the last word today you have any final things you want to share with people before we close out episode 15 consider momentum in your stillness consider what direction you want that momentum to go in like it like about that all right well we will see you all next time thanks guys it was good talking to you